Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Hyper Chicken and Associates, simple country lawyers from a backwoods asteroid. When y'all are in a 12-piece bucket of trouble, call Hyper Chicken and Associates. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. I am your host, Ben Siders, and with me here, as always, is your other host, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk as in the Captain of the Enterprise. Captain Kirk and Ben Kenobi. Uh, so today's topic is a little unusual. I we, think it's more than a little unusual. Yeah. This one's a little different. A little off the cuff. So we're going to talk about the the sort of the structure and nature of law, but through a multifaceted prism of geeky things. Which is itself kind of geeky. Multifaceted prism, really? Yeah, uh, so we're going to go through our Star Wars Episode Eight predictions. So, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to go through uh, some of the plot points in the film. But we're also going to talk about uh, RPGs, game rules, and, and some other things, and how how sort of the same basic problems humanity always tries to solve when you structure anything keep coming up over and over. And this applies to everything from the law to role-playing games to NFL instant replay. Yep. So, and I think that the thing to is just to reiterate what Ben said, this is a spoiler alert, this does <laughs> discuss episode 8 and the, the plot of episode 8 in some detail. So if you have not seen it yet, first off, why on earth are you listening to this podcast yeah, and not going seen and it, seeing it? If and second, seen it, go see it. Yeah, and secondly, uh, go feel free to skip this episode, move on to the next one, um, or go back and listen to one of your favorites from the past ones um, and listen to this episode once you have seen it, because we obviously don't want to give away the plot to people who haven't seen it. So being a lawyer, a, a common element of what lawyers uh, are asked to do is basically anticipate and predict the future. Uh, you know, when people come to us and ask questions about what they should do, you know, part of what we do is tell them what the law is as best we can discern it. And but you know, when you're drafting contracts, when you're writing patents, a lot of what you're doing is anticipating disputes or conflicts that may come up and trying to address them in advance. And yep. that's really fundamentally what you're doing with legislative exercises too. Yeah. Oh, and that's I, th- I joke about it occasionally, and I think you you hear this in law school and you hear it in other places. In many respects, what lawyers are doing is telling you how the divorce is going to happen before you've met the person you're going to marry. Um, <laughs> and that's it, it is a somewhat sort of accurate statement that it, in many respects, law is uh, m- most lawyers do. Um, when you're talking about like corporate lawyers and drafting lawyers as opposed to litigators, is they tend to be looking to the future. They tend to be looking forward. And what they're trying to do is basically put you in a best scenario so that once if the inevitable happens, everything's usually great. I mean, it, it's if, you, if what you expect to go forward goes forward and everybody's happy, there's never a problem. Yeah, that's always the joke, right? People say, why, why do I have to spend all, the, all these legal fees on things that are probably never going to happen? Yeah. I'm like, well, if none of it ever happens, I guess you don't need to, right? Just like Kirk and I always say, if, if you never use your homeowner's insurance and every penny you spent on it was wasted. Yeah, and that's I, I think that's the thing with it is in some sense, lawyers are like insurance. I mean, what we're trying to do is basically say, if something goes wrong, you have a basic idea as to what's going to happen in conjunction with this both what your what your risk is and what it isn't. I, I've jokingly referred to it, and as many of you guys know, and I've tried for years to actually write a book on sort of an introduction to patent law for startups. And one of the things I, I regularly refer to is I said, a lawyer in many respects is like a bookie. We can tell you what the odds are, and we can place a bet. We can't tell you whether or not placing <laughs> that bet is smart. Um, and well, because that's what, the thing with it. What happens is no matter how much you think ahead, things always come up that either nobody could have anticipated 
or or that you did anticipate, but the specific fact pattern that comes up doesn't neatly fit into what was written in the contract. Yeah, and and the, the reality of it is, we even mentioned this. We talked about it a little bit in the end of the world episode, um, in our you know solar eclipse episode of you know there's things which happen which just people don't plan on. And, you know, in in respect, humanity and our our human existence is built around the idea of predictability. We all assume, you know, when we get in our cars in the morning, we are arriving at work at the same time we arrive most days when we get in our cars in the morning. And when something goes wrong and you get into a car accident or there's somebody else in a car accident and it slows you up, those unexpected things cause you problems. You may have planned on a meeting knowing that, you know, you're usually into the office at 9 o'clock. You can have a meeting at 9.15 and suddenly you're not there until 9.30. And, you know, that is sort of – the unexpected is is a little bit – the nature of human existence at the same time we plan for it to be predictable because most of the time it's predictable. The other problem we run into is that at the end of the day, everything that we do boils down to having to describe, you know, in a contract, yep. what, are the, what do the parties intend? Well, we try to capture it in a contract so that when things go wrong or something unexpected happens in two years, we can look back at the contract and say, well, here's what we agreed we should do yep. if this comes up. The problem is the four First Majeure episode is a good example. Sometimes these contracts are drafted in a way that's meant to capture something that's going to happen later. But since we don't know exactly what it's going to be, it's kind of hard to say whether the language really captures that or not. And part of that, I think, is just the inherent ambiguity of language. And I, yep. I'm not multilingual, so I can't say if this is uniquely a problem in English. But English <laughs> yes. has a lot of ambiguity. And I think it's a little unique in some ways because it has so many influences from different linguistic traditions. You've got, you know, sometimes four different words for the same thing. You've got a Greek version and a, and a Romance version and a, you know, a Germanic version and yep. all these different words that, that, that mean the same thing. But w- what we think they mean often differs from person to person. And, and language that seems clear on its face can mean very different things to two different people. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when we start talking about language, and I think this is very, you know, relevant – um, I've, you know, I have had friends who have PhDs in linguistics, and you know they've commented about you know trying to do linguistic analysis of law is very difficult. And one of the reasons that it's very very interesting in in conjunction with doing analysis and linguistic analysis of law is legal documents try to be very very exact. But part of what it does is it creates a language all its own. Mm-hmm. And people often talk about, you know, the, the problems with legalese. Why do you use legalese? Why do we use things like force majeure? Why do we say that? Because everybody we, knows what it means. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the issue is that nobody outside of lawyers knows what it means, but lawyers know what it's supposed to mean. And so you, when you get to the idea of saying what we're trying to do is resolve ambiguity. And we many respects, clarity. that's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, here's a good example, and I use this a lot in presentations when I describe the law to uh, – we do a lot of talks for entrepreneurs and people like that. So suppose you have a contract to buy a brown spotted cow. Yep. And the first question I ask is, what color is the cow? What color are the spots? And it's, it's, it's ambiguous, right? Yep. You could probably find a, a grammar expert to look at that and say, well, you know, under normal rules, the, you know, the, the spotted describes brown. So the means that, that you know, they'll, they'll, there's a, a way you can dec- decide which adjective goes with which adjective or which noun. Yep. But it's, it's inherently ambiguous. And just because you have a, gra- a grammatician who might be able to say, this is how it should be interpreted in English. The, the point of the contract is what did the parties intend? Yep. And what they intended may not necessarily match the, you know, the, the Chicago-style uh, rules of grammar. Yeah, and particularly as it's, I think it's worth noting, when you say brown-spotted cow, we're, we're putting no pronunciation, or sorry, um, no punctuation yeah. in conjunction brown with brown-spotted cow. Brown-spotted yeah. cow. 
Um, so there's no commas, there's no hyphens. You look at it and say, well, what you really have, first off, is a drafting error. Shouldn't we have drafted yeah. this more specifically? Well, part of the answer to that is, is that the parties may have only had one cow. And so, so we knows. know it's the brown-spotted cow. We know that that's what it's supposed to be. The, the concern with it is, at the time it was drafted, it may have been definite. But now we may be looking at it 20 years from, you know, from now. That cow has died and long since died. Nobody can remember what it was, and nobody can remember if it was actually transferred. And so we, we often clarify some of this stuff. Here's a simple example. What if I say brown, comma, spotted cow? Yep. Okay, well— the cow was brown, apparently. Yep. What color were the spots? Yep, and that's the thing. We've now said it's a brown cow, at least. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, what do we mean for the colors of the spots? Or replace the comma with a hyphen, the brown-spotted cow. Well, now we know it's a cow of undetermined color with brown spots. Yes, and I think that's the thing. The other thing, just to sort of point out, you know, and I think I'm just going to throw one more ambiguity word in here, is cow, and I know you're from Iowa yeah. and stuff like that. Cow generally implies female. Yeah. Did we actually mean that? Were we selling a bull? <laughs> yeah, or were we selling a bull? Um, what exactly do we mean here? A cow is also the generic term for the female of a number of different mammal species. So presumably in a transaction like this, you'd know. But suppose you said cow and you're buying an animal from an aquarium. Yep. It could be anything. <laughs> yeah, it could be anything. So what it would be. Presumably it might be a manatee. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, be a logical so sort of thing. So a, a lawyer would write the brown cow with brown spots and repeat the phrase brown cow with brown spots throughout yep. the contract because it's clear. It's well, annoying to read. what they'd actually do is they'd say the, cow with, the, the brown cow with brown spots here and after referred to as the cow. Yeah, cow, capital C. <laughs> and you might even put an exhibit it with a picture of the cow and yeah. then you'll Bessie written underneath yeah, it or, something or a like reference that. number or something similar and and again I think what we're talking about with this and what I think we're really trying to get at with these points is we gave three words and we gave seven or eight different interpretations of what that word could be those three words could potentially mean contracts are thousands of words yeah you know, so involving much more con- complex concepts than cows. Yeah, and and you know, a lot of times it's it gets to things where it's not necessarily clear. When I say, "Hey, what's the copyright in this?" You know, things mm-hmm. we've been through previously. Well, what is copyright? For those of you who are, who are tech geeks, uh, if I say the website, what do I mean? Do I mean the domain name? Do I mean the content on the page? Do I need, mean the the code on the back end? Does that include the Tomcat server? It, it could be all of that. It could be none of that. It could be uh, just just you know the visual asset files. And when you're when you're writing a contract to buy a website, it's important to be clear on what all that stuff is. Yeah, and that's what we bump into a lot. The other thing you definitely can bump into is a lot of times a contract is drafted by a particular kind of lawyer who's involved in that type of transaction. If what's being sold is something different, you may bump into it. So, for example, you may have a real estate lawyer who's familiar with real estate contracts, writing real estate contracts, knows how to describe real estate, but if suddenly the real estate includes a statue... You know, there's a, a presentation of a statue. Suddenly, you may have IP law involved in conjunction with this that the real estate lawyer may not necessarily know, um, and that's really the, the sort of problem you get into. And, and I think where we want to go with this is to recognize that contract drafting. We're talking about attorneys' contract drafting. Attorneys, in many respects, in a contract drafting scenario and a patent drafting scenario, what they're doing is they're writing the law because they're defining the relationship between the two parties. That's what we call private law as opposed to public legislation. What we then have is public legislation. Now we start looking at it. Which has all the same problems. Yes. That has all the same problems, but now it's one person writing it for everybody. Um, I know just from a little piece of recent research I was doing, um, there was a discussion about you know the interpretation of law, and the Supreme Court had a great statement, which I thought was great, which was, I don't believe Congress intends to fi- hide elephants in mouse holes. Um, <laughs> what was the but, context for that? So, and that was an interpretation of whether or not the law had basically been substantively changed in mm-hmm. a very major way by a very small modification. 
And that was sort of their comment is, I don't think that's what Congress intended. Well, that's ultimately the role of courts, too, in our system is to look at legislation or in private law contracts and figure out what they mean. And and the point is to give effect to the intent of whoever wrote it. But the problem you have in contracts is it's usually written primarily by one person sent to the other side. They look at it, maybe send some revisions back or, you know, consumer contracts the things that you and I just deal with on a day in and day out yep. basis are click through licenses or, or contracts that have no terms. You pull up to the drive through at McDonald's, you order a sandwich, you pay the money, there's a contract there. Although you never signed or agreed to anything explicitly, they agreed to offer you food, you agreed to buy it and pay the money for it. There's There's an implied term as to the quality of the food, there's an implied term that's going to be safe to eat, and this is where this is where lawsuits are born. Not not for McDonald's, because nobody in their right mind would sue over that. Uh, I guess except in class action cases. <laughs> yeah. But in commercial contracts and in legislation, you know, we, we get lawsuits to clarify what these things mean where they're not clear. I remember one example in law school. Uh, Congress had written some law to renew a license. I think it involved uh, licenses to do certain things on public lands. And the, 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 the application to request the renewal had to be filed before the last day of the year. Yep. So had to be filed by December 30th or sooner, even if December 31st was a business day. But what happened is everybody just assumed they meant the last day of the year. So everybody filed their permits on December 31st. Well, somebody uh, wanted to pick up one of these public land rights and argued that since they were filed on the 31st, they were all late permits and the licenses went back to the public for open bidding. And I believe the court looked at it and said, no – it's obvious that they meant the 31st, even though they said before the 31st. Yeah. And that's what everybody's been doing all this time. And it goes back to your point, Kirk, about what do people expect? Yeah. And and I think that's the, the biggest thing you get into is a lot of times what do people expect the law to be and how do they expect it to play out? But we've, we've commented about previous episodes in this that – People's expectation of what the law is is not necessarily what the law is. Often wildly at odds. Often wildly at odds. And sometimes it's also what they expect the law to be is not what the law was actually intended to be. And I think you see, you know, if you when you start digging into law school, one of the things that you, you it's joked about in law school is when you come out of law school, you can no longer see black and white. You only see gray. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is is because you become very lost in the interpretation. So examples I use, I mean, use the brown spotted cow, but I pick on simple laws. And I say, you know, let's look at the speed limit. How many people actually think the speed limit is a limit? It is. They can pull you over for mm-hmm. anything above that. For half a mile an hour over the speed limit, they can pull you over. For a tenth of a mile over the speed limit, they can pull you over because it's truly a limit. Mm-hmm. You know, as to what it is. Now, admittedly, there may not be tech sufficient to tell you whether you're going a tenth of a mile over. They evidentiary it. problems. Yeah, they have an evidentiary problem, but they technically can pull you over for, you know, anything above that. Yet most of us sort of look and say, oh, they really mean about 10 miles an hour over. You know, you hear those kind of phrases sort of thrown out there. What we have in that is a recognition that effectively the speed limit isn't necessarily absolute, even though it's about as clear and absolute as it can be. And the example I oftentimes use is I said that for a while there you know, was comments about making the speed limit like drive safely you know, and things like that, which basically is the ultimate ambiguity. But then you even bump into questions. And the example I used is I said, let's make a, take a dangerous corner and say, you know, our thing is you should take the corner at a safe speed. Mm-hmm. A safe speed for me and you is probably different than it is for Mario Andretti. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, let, let's be realistic here. They, they, now we have a law that applies differently to different people. Um, and so when, when we're talking about law and, and what we're trying to get at, I think, in the sort of this episode and, and the thing with it, in the in a lot of these episodes and a lot of what we're talking about here, we're talking about laws. And, and a few of us, a few people have definitely expressed some frustration of why don't we ever answer the questions? 
And part of the reason is, is because half the time we don't actually even know what the yeah. question is. Word that we could. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're looking at it and saying, what does this law mean? And the answer is the law means whatever they say it means when the official decision maker decides how it applies to these facts. And that's a common thing that, that you get in law school and I think worth noting. When you make a legal determination when you're talking about law, you're actually talking about the interaction of two things. The first one of which is what is the law and mm-hmm. how does the law get interpreted? Just and figuring said, that out can yeah. be difficult. The second thing is then once we figured that out, what are the facts and how do those facts apply? So again, mm-hmm. we talk about like the brown-spotted cow an- analogy. If there's only one cow that the person owns and it says I'm buying your brown-spotted cow or there's only one spotted cow the person owns, the other one is a solid color, it should be pretty clear which cow was intended should to be, be sold. In many respects from that, it doesn't matter what cow is being referred to because only one cow could be referred to under the facts. But when we bump into a scenario that says, hey, the brown spotted cow and the person has an entire field of cows with different colored spots, maybe they put Minecraft and have all the, you know, colored sheep, <laughs> um, you know, type of thing in conjunction with They found a way to, you know, make the, the cows change color. Um, or are you selling a mushroom? Um, Pretty sure you can only dye the sheep in Minecraft. <laughs> I know, you can only dye the sheep in Minecraft. Maybe they should make it so you can dye the you cows. You should be able to dye the cows. Dye the chickens cow. would be even fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe, the, uh, but yeah, I think the... Um, the, the thing that you really get into with this, and I think that the important thing to take away from the starting point of this, is just how ambiguous language can be. And that's the reason in many respects, and I tell people this all the time, there's a lot of people who come in and say, the law is wrong. This case was decided wrongly. And the answer is, no. Actually, it probably never what was the, what decided What they really mean wrongly. is that the outcome seems unjust, and, and the, the fundamental concern of the law is to affect justice. That would be at least – people yeah. ask me what the law is. I'm like, it's a set of rules to bring about justice. No, and, it's not. It's well, a set of rules to bring about, to bring about essentially an agreement yeah. as to what the outcome should be. What it really does in effect is establish finality as to who, who wins, yeah. who, whose rights went out. Well, we're going to explore these issues in the context of our Episode 8 predictions, which and, – and you'll see how, how something as simple and clear as – we watched a movie, we know what happens, and we have a, a one-word sentence describing things we all understand very simply. In fact, our second one here is a three-word prediction yeah. that it's not clear who was right and who was wrong. Yeah, or if either of us was. Yeah, so uh, spoilers are about to start. So if you didn't heed Kirk's earlier spoiler warning, this is your next spoiler warning. If you keep listening, the movie will be spoiled to at least some extent, and you have nobody to blame but yourself. We just say that a law. Did you catch that? We just actually <laughs> said there's a contract with you, which is we're about to do this. Yeah. It's now up to you to make your decision. That was a disclaimer of warranties. Disclaimer okay, so warranty. spoilers in three, two, one. It's on you now. Okay, so we'll go through our predictions. Uh, and so we already have our first legal problem, which is Kurt can't find his sheet with his answers. So we're missing some evidence. So what? I, yeah. So we're missing <laughs> evidence, and we can't figure out exactly what the contract was. That this is the first problem we already bumped which into. Which happens all the time. You'd be amazed how often uh, contracts get get misplaced or lost, or people aren't sure if yeah. they have all the amendments or anything else. Or to, to use the example, a lot of times contracts are amended. They're sort of changed repeatedly during the course of it. Is the version I have the version that was actually executed, or is it some prior draft? So prediction number one was a character says, I've got a bad feeling about this. I said true. You said true. true. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. How did this not happen? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, we kind of talked about this, Rian Johnson subverting expectations. Well, there you go. Yeah. You know, that's got to be the first episode that that didn't happen. Uh, unfortunately, I think that was an unfortunate trend to break. I think that was a cute they, they meme that continued throughout it. I wish he would have continued it, but All right. well. Number two, we have our first contract dispute. Princess Leia dies. Does she or doesn't she? That depends. That depends on what you mean by dies. Yeah, what do you mean by dies? Well... She gets blown out into the vacuum of space and freezes. Yeah. But then at the end of the movie, she's still alive. So 
It depends on how you define death. If by definition death is a permanent state of affairs, then clearly she did not yep. die. If death is instead defined by some sort of medical standard where you could conceivably be resuscitated, yep. then maybe she did die and came back to life. And one of the things to keep in mind with this, we are talking about non-effectively standard Earth human yeah. medical technology. Technically, she's an alien, so. Well, I mean, that's you know they, they say this in the galaxy, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. She's technically not human, you know. Mm-hmm. Where we have what exactly is the state of Princess Leia dying? What does dying mean? And we look at it and say, did she freeze to death but was revived? You know, is that what happened here? You know, where, where do we have, say she dies? And is it, I think it, this is a good place to also talk about what was expected. I think we were both mm-hmm. looking at it and saying, does she die to the fact that she cannot return in the next movie? Yeah, I mean, when we say die, that's what we mean. We mean the term die as anybody else would expect it. And if you were watching it, you probably had the same thought we were. I mean, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, she's blown out into space. We're like, well, this is how they're going to write Carrie Fisher out of the movie. And I was kind of sad at that point. I'm like, well, that's kind of an inglorious... <laughs> You know, a yeah. bad way to go. But then she, Mary Poppins is her way back into the ship. and Which was, one of, I have to say, probably the cheesiest moment in the entire movie. It was. And, and on a story level, it didn't make sense. Like, okay, so the, the ship takes a hit. She's blown back into space. She uses the force to work her way back in. But she's, she's sick and bedridden. Why did she have to be blown out into space in the first place for that? She could have had the explosion knock her out and put her in the bed and... and the movie moves on yeah, without the, that the weird scene. The only thing scene. I came up with it is they were trying to point out the fact that she could use the Force. That was the only... Which would make sense if she used it later on in the movie to yeah. where they had to set that up, but then she never really does. Well, the one that I particularly thought about in conjunction with it is, you know, why did they set that up is when she encounters Poe later on, she uses her blaster. Yeah. Her stun blaster. The only person, I mean, like, the only person stun blasters are ever used is around Princess <laughs> Leia. Like, what's the deal with that? There's one other actual ambiguity I'm going to throw into conjunction with our question. She isn't a princess anymore. I guess not. She's General Leia now. Technically, Alderaan was destroyed. She was the princess of Alderaan. And it's gone. So then you have another fact question. Are, are, are you still a princess if you have no people to rule? Yeah, and particularly, are we actually referring to the same person? Or are we referring to a different person when we say Princess Leia? We get into that with uh, Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker, too. Are they different people or not? Or Kylo Ren even says yep. that he destroyed Ben Kenobi. So, yep. you know... The, Again, these ambiguities, th- things that should be simple, a three-word sentence, Princess Leia dies, raises, at least in the minds of lawyers, all kinds of questions. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and it is, I think, a very sort of, you know, good thing with it. The other reason just to mention with this, and I think the idea of what is death, we're talking about this and sort of saying, hey, what does it mean to be blooded in space? Keep in mind, in law for us, the death can be an important thing. I mean, this can trigger wills. This can trigger transfer of assets. There's a big, one of the big things, and I remember it from law school exams, is when you write something and you say, which person dies first? Mm-hmm. So the person who dies first, you know, the idea behind it is that you have a husband and wife, like in a trust and estate scenario, and it says whichever dies first, the assets go to the other. Well, the issue is, is what if you're both killed in a car wreck? Who died first? Yeah, and a lot of states have rules like that, that deaths are considered simultaneous if they occur within a certain amount of time. Because yep. you get problems where there's a car accident that kills one spouse, the next one, the other one lingers on for three days before dying. And it just seems arbitrary that the wills wouldn't work that way, particularly if each spouse has a different will. Yep. And then who gets the, the estate differs. And they sort of, there's a fiction of simultaneous death if the deaths occur, you know, uh, within a certain amount of time. Yep. It's, there's a lot of weird stuff like that to deal with these things. And it's an important thing to, to sort of keep in mind in conjunction with those. And a lot of times, again, the law tries to write that ambiguity out. They try to write in that wins certain, you know, trust in states require certain things. Part of the reason they also require it is because you don't want to have sort of bad acting. So again, use the example of it's, well, if we have person A, if they die simultaneously, um, this is what happens. If they die, you know, non-simultaneously, it transfers to one. Well, let's assume that there's a person with self-interest who says, if this spouse survives, 
I get everything in the end. So now they're, you know, one, one dies in, is dead when they arrive on the scene of the crash. The other is still alive. The, this, the law says, well, if they survive more than five days, mm-hmm. they don't die simultaneously. That person now has an incentive to, to effectively plug. keep them alive for the five days and then, then arguably pull the plug. Mm-hmm. Which is a horrible incentive when you think about it as to what it is. Well, so, you don't want to put people in that position either. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's terrible. Okay, uh, moving on. Number three was Chewbacca dies. I said true. It was false. Kirk, I think you said, I said false. false. Yep. yep. Uh, number four, Hayden Christensen or even McGregor have cameos. Didn't happen. I said it would. It did yeah, not. Yeah, I said it didn't happen. As at least I hoped it wouldn't happen. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah, that that did not happen. Yoda showed up, um, which I did not expect. I guess I should yep. have, but... Um, number five, Kylo Ren executes a high-ranking officer as punishment for failure. I don't think that happened. Well, I think the question with this is he clearly executed some people in conjunction with this, and he executed arguably the highest-ranking officer in the first yeah, order. Yeah, he executed the entire Praetorian Guard, but was it for failure? <laughs> yeah, that's the issue is it probably wasn't for failure. So, again, we have an ambiguity. Yeah, so he, we have part of the fact, uh, executes them, but, but the reason why gets into motivation, what was in his head at the time. Yeah. And I think the evidence on the screen is, no, he was just trying to survive because he— yeah, they were technically doing their duty and attempting yeah. to protect their their charge. Which I guess they you had could say it was do. for failure, right? Because yeah. they failed to protect Snow because he got <laughs> killed. But that's not why Ren killed them. Yeah. Although they did fail, so now you have a causation problem. Yeah. So and, yeah, <laughs> you know, this is where we like getting into these kind of things, just to point out. Look, I mean, these are simple questions, and we're creating multiple problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number six, there's a reference to something from the Timothy Zahn novels. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything either. Um, now, there very well could have been that we just didn't catch. I yeah. mean, both of us, well, I think, have only seen it once. Yeah. So, there so is we have a any Well, actually, guys out there, let us know if you yeah. saw anything. I did not. Uh, Vader's castle appears. Did not. Did not happen. See we that. both thought it would, I believe. Uh, Luke had her wife and Ren killed her. No evidence of that. Yeah, no evidence of that. Definitely no evidence of, of Luke having a spouse of any form in conjunction no. with it. Uh, Lando Calrissian, uh, nothing there. Yeah, we think. both hoped he would show up. but uh, So this one's a good one. Poe and Finn will have their own separate buddy adventure while Rey trains with Luke. Now, I said true on this, and you said said false, false, and you said because it's not going to be a buddy adventure. Yep. And you were right. It and wasn't. I was right. It was not a buddy adventure because we have Rose. Yeah. Rose uh, was the buddy. Yeah. And and that's the sort of interesting thing about it. They definitely do sort of go off together. The other thing with it is arguably it's not while Ren is training. I think there's some argument. And she didn't really nev- train, yeah, right? Never we all just assumed she'd Ren. be training with Luke. And she kind of did, but not not in the way we expected. Yeah. I mean, there's there's I think the scene we saw of her training, she's basically training herself. You know, the, the scene where she's attacking the, the rocks and stuff yep. like that. In some sense, Luke does train her. He teaches her. He these, teaches her sort of philosophically about yeah. the force and what it is but he doesn't like he doesn't train her in the way Yoda trained Luke in Empire Strikes yeah, Back yeah and I think that's what we were kind of expecting was that type of a thing we were all sort of I think hoping in some respects that you know were they going to try to recreate the backpack with you know mm-hmm. Ren having with Ray having to carry Luke around on her back which would have been just hilarious but okay next one Snoke is actually Boba Fett who escaped the Sarlacc pit uh, no evidence of that either we don't know I mean, we don't know but there's no evidence know. of it okay here's a good one Captain Phasma takes off her helmet Oh, this is a rough one. She didn't take it she didn't off, but take it was it broken. Off. It was broken so we could see her face. And that's the whole... So now we get into intent. The point of this was, are we going to see her face? Yes. You know, are we going to see the helmeted character's face? We did, partially... But she didn't literally take off her helmet. Yep. Somebody else removed part of it without taking it off of her head. So I said false, and I gave myself a point for it. You yep. said true, and I took one away. Yep. It didn't matter because you still won. But you guys are seeing we're, we're, we're you know, 11, 12 questions into this. There's at least three or four of these already that, that are ambiguous. Yep. And, and I think the other the, the, the one with Cats and Phasma I think is particularly good because I think 
a lot of us have looked at it and said we really liked Captain Phasma as a character, and she was just horribly underutilized in, in Episode Seven. And so the hope was is that she would become a more character character and part of that would be humanizing her the same way Ren is with the idea of taking off his helmet they're no longer sort of the faceless thugs that's what we sort of hoped at and unfortunately even her taking out the helmet being broken in the end you don't get that effect. It's not really obvious. The you know the actress inside is not real obvious. Um, it's not that big a piece of her helmet. And quite frankly, I think it also creates the next question, which is: Is she dead? Oh wait, would, what's dead again? I would assume not, since we should have been dead after being crushed in the garbage compactor, <laughs> and wasn't. They never told us what happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, so the next one is um, someone will say a line like, no, I am your father. I didn't remember any lines quite like that. The closest no. one is, is was it Kylo Ren tells Ray, I think you know the truth about your parents? Yeah, it's Kylo Ren's statement. With the, I, I've seen the, it showed me, I saw through the visions, I know who yeah. your parents are, stuff like that. And they're that. nobody. And so we would assume that they're not Skywalkers, but you know, uh, Shmi Skywalker was nobody. So yeah. and the other thing with it is, and I think the thing to get into is, is Kylo Ren telling the truth? And that's what we really yeah. don't know. We're not going to have yeah. an entry problem, which is basically Kylo Ren had a, a motivation at that point in time to lie. Uh, next one, there will be some reference to something in the Han, that Han Solo did in the past that winds up being in the plot of the Han Solo standalone movie. I didn't catch anything, Neither did you? Did I. Yeah, we well, worried about course, that we one. we have to wait till the Han Solo movie to really know whether or not there's a reference. Yep. Uh, Jar Jar Binks is actually a Sith Lord. Uh, no evidence of that either. Nope. <laughs> um, there will be an important post-credits scene. Uh, I didn't see one, did no, you? No, I didn't see one either. They did have a little placard uh, in loving memory of our Princess Carrie yep. Fisher. That was nice. I, the the whole theater kind of got the feels on that. My wife started crying. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I mean, and I have to admit, I thought that was very well done. I actually thought to be truthful as well. It was it was a nice reference to refer to her as, the, as her, their princess. Yep. Um, the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people have taken Carrie Fisher as being the example of what a princess should be, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of moving to the, you know, the, a lot of the empowerment sort of statements and things like that. And, it's, and I really enjoyed that and I liked the fact that they used that as opposed to saying, you know, our general or something like that yep. as to what it was. And again, that was my thing with her dying was the, I really hoped that they would do something that was, you know, in honor of, of Carrie Fisher and that may still happen, but yep. we'll see. Next one, we'll get an explanation for how the First Order gets the resources. No, I didn't <laughs> see anything. Not. <laughs> we knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, this one's interesting. The final climactic lightsaber duel will be between Luke and Kylo Ren. Uh, was it? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> but then here's what, here's what else we said. And be the mirror image of the Luke Vader fight. Well, it was a mirror image. Yep. But not the way we thought. Not the way we thought at all. And this is the best example of the idea that we hadn't even contemplated the outcome that we basically saw in no, the movie. No, so, so those of you who, ignored, who have not seen it and ignored the spoiler warning, shame on you, what happens at the end is Luke stays on the planet that he's on and Force projects uh, uh, an image of himself yes. to the planet where Kylo Ren is, and they duel, but I don't think their lightsabers actually cross They're even never, once. Their lightsabers never cross, and part of the thing is that Luke dodges all of Kylo Ren's Dodges attacks. them all, so they kind of have a duel, but there's like a couple of swings, and then Kylo Ren cuts through them, but it's an image, it's so an nothing image happens. And he disappears. Now, there's also the scene with it, and I still think it's probably the, the best the best scene I've, I joke about, it, as I said, my, the one of my fa- truly favorite scenes in the movie, because to me, it is Kylo Ren's character, which is Luke showing up, and him t- telling his commander, I want every gun we yeah. have aimed at that man. <laughs> After they shoot for like a minute straight, he's yeah. like, do you think you got him? <laughs> and then he walks out and, yep. the, and you know, sort of and brushes, brushes the, the dust, dust off. off his shirt. Oh, no, that was terrific. Presumably he didn't actually have dust on his shirt. That's the thing that's great about it. Oh, it's just a flourish. <laughs> it's entirely a flourish. It's entirely playing into the expectations. The other thing that's really cool in that scene, quite frankly, and it's, I just want to sort of mention it because to me it was what made episode eight. 
that scene is beautiful. And what's cool about that scene is he gives it away two different times mm-hmm. that Luke is a hologram. You don't realize it until afterwards. Yeah. And it's like, this it's to me, it's, it's, that was brilliant movie making, you know, right there. Yeah, like like Luke's got his old lightsaber that we just saw get destroyed on Snoke's ship. And yeah. he's it's like, he's, he's he's gotten his hair club for men die on, and all of a sudden he's not all scraggly and unkempt. Yeah. And what, they set that up well because they showed you his X-Wing in the water at some point. Yeah. So you had a reason to think he could get off the planet if he wanted to. Yeah, though it was pretty well buried and yep. very Dagobah-ish. Yep. <laughs> the, other, the other one, uh, I think, sort of with it, and that's the, the one that I put out there I thought was very fascinating. And I put this out for episode nine predictions. Why did he use Anakin's lightsaber in the projection? Why did he not use his green lightsaber? Um, because the green one is his. The blue one is Anakin's. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that he given that so, so you know why didn't he use his traditional lightsaber and is it because we know he uses the green lightsaber the only time we see it in the movie is when he's ready to attack Ben as his student yep that's right is there something to this is there something with the green lightsaber we're going to learn about is there something to Anakin's lightsaber we're going to learn about here in the future another point with this one is I said with Luke defeating Kylo Ren does Luke I'd argue Luke wins in a, in a sense, but he doesn't really defeat him. Strike me down and I shall become more powerful <laughs> than you can ever imagine. I think it's exactly a playoff of Ben. It, it kind of is. It kind of is. It's a, it, that, that one's a tough one. It was a really complex question. There was more to it. So we'll, so we'll move on. Uh, number 20, Snoke is a shaman of the wills. We got nothing no on idea. that. No explanation of where he came from. Although we were right. that He, he wound up being nobody that, that we At know of. At least as far as we know, yeah. All right, number 21. Princess Leia doesn't die at the end, which is true, yep. but she does have to leave and never return for some reason. False. In, at least at the end, at she the did end. have to die. She did have to leave and not return because she was in a coma for most of the movie. Yeah, so, so this one I said true, but I did not give myself a point yep. for it because it was a compound question. Yep, I think we both failed on that one. I think we, we, opposite, yep. we went the opposite directions and we both had it wrong. Uh, the scene from the trailer where Rey lights her lightsaber in the rain is her fighting a vision like Luke did on Dagobah. No, that nope, didn't happen. Wasn't, didn't happen. That was simple enough. Okay, another good one. 23, Kylo Ren saves Rey from Snoke. Oh, boy. Well, yes. I think he does. I think <laughs> we both does. said yes. Um, yeah. Oh, no, you said, you said yes and I said you no. You said no, it happens the next episode. Yep. So I think I worded myself a point. Not that it mattered because yep, you still correct. beat me. Yep. Uh, 24, we don't actually find out who both of Ray's parents are. Well, baby. What do we mean by find out who they are? We find out what they were. They were, you know, you know, junkers yep. who traded her for, you know, a pack of camels, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the big thing with it is, is one, that's what we're told by Kylo Ren. We're told. We don't is it accurate? The second thing is we're also told something different by the movie. She has to see who her parents are and you see herself. Mm-hmm. You know, is there something of sort of, you know, this, you know, sort of immaculate conception idea again? It could be so. So that one we uh, we we play these all straight. So I Mark, I said false, but I, I I gave Kirk the point for this. Didn't you say true for this one? I think I did. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and then the last one, the Millennium Falcon is destroyed. Clearly, did not happen. Yep. So uh, that one that was pretty straightforward. So uh, as you can see, just going through a really simple exercise like this, and and those of you who've ever played a board game, uh, you know, Settlers of Catan or or Magic: The Gathering, yeah, know how these fights go, where you're trying to interpret what this text. Means and particularly 
when you have sets of rules that interact with each other in, in ways that can be non-intuitive. And Kirk and I were just talking the other day. We both play Hearthstone, which if you don't play it, it's basically a Magic the Gathering-like game implemented yeah, on a computer. Card game yeah. on a computer. There's no actual cards ever. I don't think they've ever created a hard copy no, version of it. No, no. But you, you get weird interactions of cards that the, the rules are applied programmatically by the software, so it comes out the quote-unquote right way. Yep. But that way is often intuitive. And the, the example we had is just one card that when you draw it, um, when you play it, it damages your character and then draws a card. Yeah, it says you, da- you take two damage and draw a card. The problem is, or not the problem, interesting thing is, once in a while, the card you draw is a card that says, if your character takes damage, damage from your cards, then, then the new card gets better. So intuitively, I think, okay, I play this card, I take my damage. That part is done. Then I draw a new card that says, if I take damage while this is in my hand, the card gets better. Well, I already took the damage, so it shouldn't improve. Yep. But it does. It does. And and just to, anybody who has played Hearthstone, it's, it's the interaction of Kabold Librarian and um, the... Oh, gosh, what is it? The Amethyst? Amethyst uh, Spellstone, yeah, I believe it is, yeah. from, uh, from Warlock. But you know, look at the text. It says, draw a card and... Yeah. Take the damage. So they're treated as happening simultaneously because of the use of the, the yeah. conjunctive. And the way the animation actually occurs, you know, the way the animation actually occurs, you actually believe get hit by the damage from the kobold before the card is drawn. Yeah. But you then see that as soon as the card appears, it actually shows the interaction saying it's been boosted. If you've ever dungeon mastered a game, you've had this come up where somebody, I mean, this is the nature of RPG. Somebody wants to do something and the rules don't clearly cover it or don't clever cover it the way that that you know that they want to. Uh, we had I remember playing in college and we had somebody who I, I foolishly let them play a character who was like a tiny size, you know, like a brownie or something. Yep. And they were up against, they wanted to fight like a dragon. And the D&D rules at the time gave you a massive hit bonus for a smaller character attacking a larger one and a massive hit penalty for a larger character attacking a smaller one. Well, the difference in size between these two was so big, the dragon could basically never hit the player, and the player could almost always hit the dragon for very little damage, but... Basically, the battle went on long enough that this brownie was going to henpeck this dragon to death. Yeah. And I'm like, I, at some point, I had to find a way around it, which when you're the DM, you just make stuff up. Yeah, and that's, I think, that, I don't know if, if that, what our <laughs> listeners are, but you know, I've definitely game mastered. I actually was not big into to Dungeons and Dragons. I was a very, very active Shadowrun player. And one of the ones that I always thought was very interesting when I did it, I used to de- uh, you know game, game master a lot of Shadowrun games. And when I first started doing it, I think I did what a lot of game masters do, which is use prepared campaigns. And I remember that, partially because I like collecting the books, I got a number of the, the prepared campaigns, and we were going to do some of the more major ones. One of the problems you want me to do with prepared campaigns, any players who sort of know the universe tend to know the basics of what happens in a prepared mm-hmm. campaign anyway, or have read it, or know sort of part of the mythology. So if you guys know the, the basics of Shadowrun, one of the major campaigns in conjunction with it is Harlequin, um, and sort of the, the whole Harlequin campaign series. The, the thing that you bump into with it is if somebody has an idea of what's supposed to happen, Sometimes they violate what you need to have happen. And that was something where, you know, the first time I ran a prepared campaign, they go through, here's the, you know, first few things we're going to do. You know, here's how you're going to meet your contact. And suddenly the characters aren't doing what I need them to do. I mean, I literally can't get beyond page one of a prepared campaign because the characters aren't following the script enough. And that's, I think, the, again, sort of gets into this idea of legal interpretation and future. When they write those campaigns, they take into account, this is what we expect the players to do. And if they, and don't, they don't, it's your job as the DM to kind of make some stuff up to keep them on, on course. And that's where sort of yeah. the creativity of that fits in. We also talked about um, 
how how these concepts play into things like like instant replay in sports. If you ever yeah. watched a football game, some plays can be reviewed, and there's always one of three outcomes. Yeah, you'll all know who wins the Super Bowl when you're yeah. listening to this, though we don't now. Yeah, we don't know now. Um, so you'll have the the, the 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 call on the field has been confirmed, meaning that the evidence on instant replays show that they made the right call. It's been reversed, meaning the evidence on the replay showed conclusively that the call was wrong. And then there's the ruling on the field stands, yep. which means. We couldn't tell if we were right, but we couldn't tell if we were wrong. So we're just going to stick with what was the call was. And that's basically how the judicial system works. You've got a trial judge, which is the call on the field. Then you've got an appeal, which is the review. And you know, on, on review, you give a lot of deference to the first decisions so that we're not constantly second-guessing everything. And that's a, a tried-and-true technique for dealing with how you review decisions that may have been made in error. Yeah. And I think that it's a good sort of note with the, with the, the concession with instant replays. One of the things that, and we were joking about this sort of when we were talking about instant replays, one of the questions right now is a lot of people, you know, we've really gotten into the fine details of things like what does it mean to score a touchdown? What, what does, does it mean to, to make a I catch? I don't know what a catch is anymore. Yeah. Have, you, have you watched an NFL game lately? I have no idea what it means to catch a ball. Yeah, and, and we sort of look at it and say in some sense the instant <clears throat> replay has actually made these questions more ambiguous. The whole idea was this was supposed to make them more definitive. And it matters a lot sometimes. There's the famous tuck rule. I don't remember how that yeah. went down, but but even now, you know, a quarterback is about to throw the ball and gets hit and the ball comes out of his hand. It really matters. Was that a throw, in which case it's just an incomplete pass and nothing changes, yep. a loss it down, or was it a fumble, in which case it's a live ball and the other team can pick it up and run it back in for a touchdown. Yep. And, and that distinction matters, and so we're drawing extremely fine lines between at what point does a quote-unquote throw start. And this, this issue actually was pretty relevant locally here. A couple years ago, Mizzou played Iowa in a bowl game, and uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, I'm an Iowa fan, and we live in <laughs> Missouri, so I had everybody giving me crap all week for that game. But towards the end of the game, Mizzou was driving for the game-winning touchdown, threw a pass on fourth down. It looked like a catch at first, and they overturned it. It was a really close call. I was surprised they overturned it. But Mizzou fans went ballistic yeah. about the, the the BS call and how uh, how that went down. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it's, it's a classic case of of having to interpret evidence secondarily and and the deference you give to the first decision. I looked at it and said, I think it was not a catch, but yeah. under the rules, it should have been held up. But that's not what they did. And I, I was I was shocked. But that's Again, it just goes down to, we call that the standard of review. Yeah. How much deference do you give to the original decision? And I think one of the problems you also get into with this, I think the instant replay is a good example of it. The, the instant replay is really designed to eliminate ambiguity. It's supposed to deal with the fact that fans look at it and say, this is a horrible call, we're going to blame the referee. <laughs> it often just introduces more ambiguity. <laughs> and oftentimes it introduces more ambiguity. And we, we've talked a lot about times, uh, prior episodes about this, about the idea of technical solutions. And that oftentimes the, the law gets resolved with technical solutions. What we're seeing in the instant replay was we had a law, which was basically the referee's call stood. You know, people mm-hmm. can second guess it. They can say they didn't have a view. But there was no way to review it. When games started then being televised, the fans could review it remotely, but the fans in the stadium and the, and the teams mm-hmm. couldn't. And you, you started to see a dichotomy. So we brought the technical solution to the stadium and said, now it can be reviewed by the referees. But in the course of doing it, we've actually added a new ambiguity, which is the camera might not be quite in the right position. Or yep. where exactly is the line of that the That blows my mind. Have you ever watched a game where they don't actually have a, a goal line camera right on the goal line? Yeah. I'm like, this is the one thing we're going to fight about in every game. Why is there not a camera there? Yeah, and it's and you know that's what the thing with sort of laws. As we've added technical solutions, we come up with this, we have created more legal problems. You know, the, well, Hearthstone's like that, right? We yeah. have a technical solution to how these rules interact, the code will tell us. Yep. The problem is sometimes it doesn't work the way we expect and sometimes it's just flat out buggy. Yeah, and and especially with the thing, the advantage you have there is for at least, you know, when you're talking about like tournament play and stuff like that, 
the interaction should have at least been encountered yeah. so people would know how the interaction is going to happen. You also have an objective decision maker. The code knows how it's been coded and yeah. doesn't really care who's who or, or who wins or who loses based on it. Yeah. So you get that eliminates a lot yeah, of the, well, you just want the Patriots to win yeah, you bump it, <laughs> yeah, you bump into a lot of things <laughs> with judges and stuff. And again, I, I've judged like you know Warhammer 40K tournaments. And one of the big things you bump into in Warhammer 40K oh, that they talk about is if you have a rules dispute, try to work it out amongst the two players. If you can't work it out amongst the two players, you can try to bring over a judge. <laughs> or the other option is you roll a die and basically let fate decide. So it's, you know, hey, on, on a one to three, your interpretation is correct. On a five, four or five or six, my interpretation is correct. But in tournaments, they want judges to come over and do these. I think Kirk and, has the best solution to and, this. And yeah, I've, I've judged these <laughs> tournaments before. And what I do is I come over and I basically say, you know, what are the positions? What's the positions in conjunction with it? I then roll a die doing one to three <laughs> for one side and four or five and six to the other. The exact same solution they could have done. But by the act of me being a judge, whatever I say it is, is definitive. It legitimizes the arbitrariness of the dice. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that, you know, I have made a completely arbitrary decision, but legitimized <laughs> it by who I am. Uh, and I think it's an important thing to keep in mind that that's part of what we're looking at. We talk about the legal system and the judicial system. What we do is we legitimize that this is what the law says because a judge says that's the way it's supposed to be. And it either doesn't get appealed or they're the highest level court. They're the Supreme Court or the highest level court capable of reviewing it. Well, we have mail. Let's get into it. Uh, Ed from Grand Rapids uh, sent us more details on the Nazi trademark thing. We're actually going to do a full episode on this. In fact, it's our next episode. So because uh, this well, is this is really fun. This is actually an interesting <laughs> one. I don't usually put the word Nazi and fun in the same sentence together, but this is the, <laughs> the rare exception. Okay, a Mark M. Location Unknown says, I found your podcast a few days ago and I started binge listening. And Good, I'm v- keep doing so. Keep doing so. I'm very disappointed about the lack of, well, actually, guys. Also, I can't believe there was a patent on Magic the Gathering. You should do an episode about weird patents on nerd books, toys, etc. Good stuff. I yeah. like it. I mean, we agree. There have been a few. Well, actually, guys, please get out there. If you do fa- catch fact problems with this, point them out. Yeah, I'm we'd like personally to know about acquainted. Them. With, I actually re-listened to a couple of our episodes and found some mistakes. I'm not going to well actually myself. So you guys need to step it up. Okay, a Rindy F in St. Louis. Rindy actually works at our firm. Uh, she stopped by my office. I'll paraphrase. She heaped praise upon uh, the podcast. She loves it, but she hadn't realized that we were still recording. So uh, she only listened to the first four, I think, and hadn't seen the rest. So Rindy, hopefully you're listening to this and you found the rest. Uh, there's lots of content, so uh, so keep listening. And tell all your friends to listen to it too. Okay, this one, I'm confident this is a pseudonym. I think this is a character from Parks and Rec. Juan Calamezzo in Coralville, Iowa. I used to live in Coralville. There's nobody there named Juan Calamezzo. Uh, says, dude, are you having a midlife crisis or something? You guys can't shut up about the 80s. Well, technically we are midlife crisis I guess. Ages, We're at the right age for that. I, I think the, the thing about it is, is for some reason, it's a lot of our, our references for geek is from our childhood, which yeah. is the 80s. Uh, Kayla in Collinsville, Illinois, says, your childhood was barbaric and primitive. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have to kind of agree. Yep. Uh, Neil M. in St. Louis says, Have you noticed that most fantasy worlds have a million books and RPGs, but Lord of the Rings doesn't? Is that for legal reasons? Do you know why nobody has written any Lord of the Rings sequels or just other books set in that world? We actually talked about this the other day. Yep. We're going to disagree slightly, Neil, with your assertion that most fantasy worlds have a million books. Actually, we, we kind of thought about don't. it. We think it, that's it's unusual. The ones that do are basically the way we've thought this boiled down is for properties where the authors maintain control of the IP, there yeah, tends to be... Human author. Yeah, like a, like a J.K. Rowling or, or a Tolkien, where the authors maintain creative control over over the IP, you tend not to see as much uh, uh, proliferation. Yep. 
But for properties where the IP is controlled by a publisher, like uh, your typical role-playing games, you do tend to see a lot more. And we think that's for pretty obvious reasons. The publisher just needs to sell more content. The author probably has a little bit more invested in quality and and, and limiting how much is out there. And also because they're the ones who are physically generating it, they may just simply not have the interest in doing so or time. Okay, and then uh, Bill in Baldwin, Missouri says, curious to hear your thoughts about the Grumpy Cat case. Have you heard about this, Kirk? Yes, I know about the Grumpy Cat case. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but we might want to do an episode on Grumpy Cat. Um, I'll just dig into it and see what all happens. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it may be a worthwhile thing for us to talk about Grumpy Cat in the future. It is an interesting case in conjunction with it. I think it highlights some potential concerns of sort of law in the modern age and the the availability of content to go viral. Yeah. And what effect does that have on IP? There's probably a good latches discussion there, too, that if you wait too long to assert those rights, yep. so we can get into that. All right, well, uh, there's the music. It is time to go. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, uh, whether it's about Nazi trademarks or anything else, uh, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. If you like what you hear, give us a review. We appreciate that. It helps other people find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN. Uh, as we said before, our next episode is about uh, this time LucasArts um, apparently claimed a trademark to the word Nazi, and uh, we, this comes to us from Ed. And uh, after that, we're not 100% sure on the next episode. I, I think we're going to have a special guest to come on and talk about the law of random numbers, and in particular how that pertains to uh, contests and sweepstakes and, and things like that. Because there's, there's a point at which, uh, particularly when you have uh, the modern gaming model of free-to-play and you can buy more stuff, Hearthstone packs are a good example. What you get out is random, but you're paying money to get them. So at what point is it gambling? actually a big debate raging on the Hearthstone forums right now about whether or not you have to pay taxes if you win their current content. That's right, because there's a big a big contest coming out soon. So, the, so that's coming up probably in uh, two, maybe three episodes. It depends on the availability of our very special guest. So that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 